0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 14. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Our Father in heaven, we come to you this afternoon in humility and readiness to hear from you. We pray that indeed uh, we would hear, that we are indeed listening and that you would speak Uh, through your Son, by your Spirit, and even uh, through the words that I have to offer this evening. We pray that you would get great glory and even affect great change in us, your people. For your sake we pray these things, in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Tonight is a torch night, so if you're a fourth through a sixth grader and want to think about Philippians 3 and the beginning of a new year, with Caleb and Emily you can do so. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, I'd love to after. and One thing you might come to find out about me is that I'm a bit of a contrarian. I always have been. In fact, my freshman year of high school, even though uh, everyone else in my grade uh, was taking Spanish, that would have been a very prudent thing to do. Uh, I decided I didn't want to take Spanish because everyone was taking Spanish, so I took German. it was just really useful in 2020 in Albuquerque, German is. Uh, I took two more years of German in college, and then I hadn't spoken a year of it, uh, or a word of it for like six to seven years, when one morning and I don't know, somewhere in t- 2010 or 11 in Austin, I was sitting at a coffee shop, and there was a guy next to me, and he was reading Der Spiegel, it's a German newspaper, and I just... Saw it and I was like, hey, what are you reading? And uh, he told me that he was an executive for Motorola and he, Motorola had him uh, like once a month flying to Germany to do business over there. And uh, one way that he was trying to improve his German, not only was reading the, the this newspaper every day, but, but once a week attending uh, a Stammtisch. this means just a, a, a table, a, a, a language table where he would go once a week on Wednesday afternoons at the downtown German Texas Heritage Society. Uh, And the only rule is that you could only speak German. And uh, so he invited me to go with him. And I was really pumped I decided to give myself like a two week refresher on German before I showed up and so I started reading the Bible in German. I got out my old German vocabulary flashcards, like 2,000 of them and I was going through and memorizing vocabulary again. And I decided that this chance encounter with this Motorola executive was God's providence in my life uh, to make me a fluent German speaker. And uh, I was going to uh, begin speaking German only in my house uh, within my like, one-year-old and two-year-old sons, uh, then uh, being a fluent German-speaking family, uh, the Lord would probably have us move to Germany and plant a church there. Uh, so two weeks later, I go to this Stammtisch, and uh, my Motorola guy was not there. And uh, there was no one there that was like under 60, and they were all native German speakers. And they barely like, gave me the time of day. And I couldn't keep up with them at all. They were just talking about all sorts of things, probably like German politics and philosophy and stuff, like stuff that's not on the German vocab cards. And, uh, and uh, an hour later, I left very frustrated. And then I, from that day, never again got out my box of German vocab cards and began reading the Bible in English again. And uh, I I don't think it's too hard to figure out that like church planting in Germany is nowhere on the radar. Uh, So what happened? Like I was really, really excited about this uh, for a couple of weeks. Uh, And then for like 10 minutes into this first hour, I had really good intentions. Uh, and like this thing was going to happen, and then it didn't. So what in the world happened? Well, that that two weeks of my life wasn't a New Year's resolution. It it might as well could have been, right? Uh, After all, learning a new language or improving, becoming fluent in a language is often one of the most common New Year's resolutions. Uh, And perhaps you can sympathize with my story of uh, deciding to learn this new language and then giving up very quickly. My guess is you can't, and I I know this probably just by looking at the statistics. Uh, 75% of Americans are still going after their first week of New Year's resolutions. So if we do the math, and there are however many of us here, uh, three quarters of us if we began a New Year's resolution on Wednesday, uh, we're still going in this, Uh, which sounds good, except that a quarter of us aren't, right? 25% of us have already given up, like within the first week. Uh, 64% of Americans make it past a month. 46% make it past six months, while only 8% of Americans fulfill their New Year's resolutions 12 months later. So it's very likely that you have made a resolution at some point in your life. Maybe you didn't this week, uh, but at some point in your life you did, and then you got frustrated, you got lazy, you got distracted, and you gave up. So how should we as Christians think about these kinds of things? Resolutions, commitments. Uh, How should we think about change in general? Are these kinds of resolutions helpful? Should we commit or resolve ourselves to changes in our life? Should we be getting better? Should we be changing and growing? And if so, why? And then all importantly, how? Practically, how? Well, these are good questions, and I hope that we can answer some of them this evening by thinking through what we heard Drew read that Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 3. Over the years, I've also been really influenced by a book by Tim Chester. It's called You Can Change. I thought we had this book on the mobile book cart outside in the lobby, but we don't. So if you want to read this book this week, come and find me after the service, and I'll lend you my copy. Uh, But His first three chapters of that book are titled, What Would You Like to Change, Why Would You Like to Change, and How Are You Going to Change? So this evening we're going to use those chapter titles as an outline to hopefully see the gospel as the only source and means for real change. So the gospel gives us the right motive, or it gives us the right goal, it gives us the right motivation, and it gives us the right method. The goal of change, the motivation of change, and the method of change. Okay, so if you've got a Bible, or if you don't, grab one in front of you, uh, Philippians 3. In these first two chapters of this letter, Paul has been expressing his thanks to the Philippian church for their partnership in the gospel, and he's writing to them from jail. But he is joyfully content, even from prison, because the gospel is advancing and many people are believing. Apparently, though, there has Some growing selfishness, some growing disunity within this church. So he writes them in chapter 2 to complete his joy by being of the same mind, by being of the same love, to pursue unity, for them to be selfless and humble as Christ has humbled himself. But then in chapter 3, we see a bit of a shift in Paul's writing. He begins to address some false teachers who are in Philippi, who are apparently claiming superiority over the church because of their Jewish heritage. They are confident in their flesh, they are confident in their works because of their cultural or their genetic heritage. But Paul says that he has no confidence in his flesh. He's basically saying if these false teachers have claim for superiority over you, I have a bigger claim of superiority over them. As far as Jewishness went, what we first heard Drew read beginning in verse four and then ongoing, Paul was just top shelf. He he was from the kingly tribe of Benjamin, where the king Saul came from. He was a Pharisee, which was like a religious or cultural guardian of Jewishness. He was blameless in every respect of the law. But then, in describing his pedigree, Paul then uses accounting language. He counts his pedigree as a loss for the sake of Christ. It's as if he has a spiritual ledger out on his table. And he's weighing his balances. He's weighing the accounts in front of him. And one commentator says this, after his conversion to Christ, Paul recalculates the value of all of the advantages of his family and of his accomplishments, his social class and his moral achievements. And then he enters the new bottom line. All of these things now end in a new bottom line. They all add up to one overwhelming disadvantage, one huge loss. Everything that he thought would lead him to being far in the profit, far in the black, has actually showed him that all of this has led him to be in the red. He is in debt. Paul has been trusting in and pursuing a bunch of stuff as his goal, as the endpoint for his entire identity. But he came to realize that not only were these things an unsatisfying endpoint for his life, they were actually preventing him from accomplishing and getting to the goal which he was intending all along, which was to know God. He would come to find out that to know God is to know Christ, which is the way to know God, to be made right before Him, which is what he wanted all along. So here's the point. You want to make one resolution this year? If, if, you're, if, if you just want to say, the thing that I want for 2020, here's what it ought to be, to know Christ. Perhaps you already know him. It ought to be that you would know him more. Perhaps you've, been, you've grown up peripherally around Christianity, around the church. Um, you've always been curious about this Jesus. Uh, you've ever, actually never sat down and read what Jesus has, has to say for you and for your life. This ought to be your goal this year, to know him. Paul says that everything else, comparatively speaking, is entirely worthless. And not only that, but if you're a Christian and you make a bunch of other goals, that of like losing weight or reading more or even resting and relaxing more, learning a language, but knowing Christ isn't your ultimate goal, then those other things might just be the thing that will actually keep you from knowing him. Why? Well, because if these goals end on themselves, then these goals are are really just about me. We'll talk a bit more about this when we get to our motivations, but in one of his more famous essays, C.S. Lewis writes about first things and second things. Lewis says, The woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses, in the end, not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. So perhaps you know the crazy old dog lady, or you have an aunt who's a crazy cat lady. right? We all have them in our families, right? The crazy cat lady who has made cats her ultimate goal, her ultimate mode of being, her ultimate even what she thinks to be her ultimate pleasure, uh, doing so by making cats her entire being becomes an actual irresponsible cat owner. How's that? Well, in this case, uh, Lewis says that this lady has put second things, her animals, first, and in doing so has ceased to even have the first things, which are human usefulness, dignity, and pleasure for herself and for her animals. So put first things first, Lewis says, and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first, and we lose both first and second things. Paul says to know Christ should be the very first thing that we pursue as human beings. Pursue that, and then we inevitably get second things thrown in. But pursue second second things first, and we get nothing. Too often, though, we treat Christianity like the pursuit of second things, which is why we often can think of Christianity as one giant to-do list. This year is going to be different. It's going to be better, we might think. I'm going to read my Bible this year. I'm going to make it to church more often. I'm going to get sober this year. This is the year that I'm going to be more responsible about what I look at and think about and and give attention to on my phone or on my computer or my TV. And if this is all that Christianity is to you, the pursuit of second things, then you've missed the entire point. The pursuit of second things does not get you Christ. And it also doesn't give you the accomplishment of those actual second things. Those second things become unmerciful taskmasters, crushing you under the weight of performance and then of inevitable disappointment. Like, have you ever resolved to read the Bible in a year, and then by the end of January, you are just crushed under the weight of failure and then of guilt Is it possible that you have committed to second things, that of reading the Bible and not to the first things, of reading the Bible as a means to knowing Christ? There've been lots of blog posts encouraging a Bible reading plan this week, and we'll share a couple of those with you in the weekly email this week, but one said this, I don't perform this annual romp through scripture to make God any happier with me. I do it because it makes me happier with him. Or one other blogger I read this week said that I don't do all of these spiritual disciplines to make myself more precious to God, but that God might be more precious to me. This is our goal. Paul says the point is to know Christ and everything about him, to know his life, his suffering, his death, and the power of his resurrection, to know all of these things more and more and more unto eternity. He wants to know more and more about Christ. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ Jesus? And this changes us. The right goal transforms us. And Paul says that all other religious pursuits that do not have Christ and his glory as its goal should be considered rubbish, should be considered garbage, worthless, a giant loss at the bottom line that puts us in the red. If you are in Christ, And 12 months from now, we gather in this room next January and you've lost 50 pounds and you've read 20 books and you've even become proficient in speaking another language, but you do not know Christ more than what does it even matter? Jay Packer asks this, what were we made for? What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we have in life? To know God. What is the best Thing in life, to know God. So we must first have the right goal when we make resolutions. But while we must have the right goal for change, we must also have the right motivation. Secondly, the motivation of change. Paul goes on in verse 12 and he says, not that I have already obtained this, which is full knowledge of Christ, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So he's committed to to know Christ above all other religious ventures. But why? Well, because Christ Jesus has made me his own, he says. He presses on to grab hold of, to capture, to apprehend Christ. Why? Because Christ has already done that to him. Jesus has captured him. He is apprehended by Jesus. In other words, Christ's divine love and sacrificing sacrificing grace in Paul's life is now becoming his driving motivation for change. Which is, if we're honest, God's love, his sacrificing love for us, his grace in our lives, these these can often be very rarely motivations for change in our life. But if grace isn't typically our motivation for change, what are these motivations? Even for noble efforts of change, like Bible reading or church attendance, Tim Chester offers uh, three common motivations. Three common motivations that, that begin to move us towards the desire to change. The first being to prove myself to God. While most of us would never answer on a theology exam that we are saved by our good works, nevertheless our lives can often operate as if we are. That God is more pleased with me. That I am More acceptable to God when I am regularly reading my Bible, when I have discipline in my life, when I'm at church or I am regular in our gospel communities, when I'm not lusting, when I'm not angry, when I'm not jealous, when I'm not gossiping. God is more happy with me and I am more acceptable to Him. Now, this deserves some nuance because I think we can see all over the New Testament that God does have fatherly displeasure for sin. He desires us to find our joy in Him and in Him alone for His glory and our own good. But the language that we use in our membership class is that of pretending and of performing. That we can even subconsciously pretend that we're not as bad as we think we are, and thereby actually need a Savior, need the the gospel daily in our lives. Or we think that even subconsciously, we can perform our way into God's acceptance, into His pleasure. And if performance, even subconsciously, becomes our motivation for change, we'll never succeed. Why? Because we'll never perform our way into perfect righteousness. One theologian has famously said, the thing that really separates us from God is not so much our sin, but our damnable good works. That's provocative. Our good works can actually be damning. Our good works can actually be the things that are separating us from God. And while that may sound provocative and maybe contrary to what the the themes of the New Testament and the gospel of Christ is, this is exactly what Paul is concluding in Philippians 3. When his good works were done for the wrong motivation, performing into God's approval, not only were his good works not good enough, but they were in fact damnable They were keeping him from knowing Christ because he was only depending upon himself. He had no need for Jesus. And now he depends not on his own righteousness, but verse 9, he depends upon the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So in the end, we must not only repent of our sin, but when our righteousness comes from the wrong motive, we must also repent of our righteousness. Only Jesus' righteousness credited to you, can save. Proving yourself to God is not only not possible, but it is is an inadequate motivation for real and lasting change. But perhaps you've never really thought about it that way or consciously that way. Perhaps you might not want to consciously change yourself to prove yourself to God, but secondly, you might want to try to change to prove yourself to others. Anyone resonate with any of these scenarios? Like everyone else is committing to reading the Bible in a year, so I guess I will too. Not necessarily a desire to know God, but just you, gotta, you don't want to be left out and people think you're not all that holy like they are, so you got to prove yourself to them. Like No one expects me to keep this resolution because I have failed so many times in life. So this is the thing that I'm going to prove to others that I'm actually worth something. Or I'm not as attractive as I once was, so this is the year that I'm going to make myself into uh, the kind of person who was attractive those years ago. Not necessarily, just a desire to live more healthy. Or I've never been able to add much in conversation, so this is the year that I'm going to commit to reading more books, so that I can have more interesting things to say at dinner parties or something. But you know what's common in all of those things? It's just the worship of the self that you want to fit in, that you want people to think that you're successful, that you want to be noticed, that you want to sound smart, you want people to think more highly of you. Again, if your motivation is actually keeping you from worshiping Christ because you can't stop worshiping yourself, then you're just going to be crushed under the weight of the pursuit of more praise, that I need more people to like me, I need more people to accept me. But this is, is, is a dissatisfying and never-ending pursuit because no one will ever praise you enough and there is not ever enough people to accept you where you will finally feel like you've made it. Or perhaps you don't find yourself trying to pursue, pr- prove yourself to others or to God. You're lying. But you've just never thought about it that way. But at least, maybe you'll perhaps at least try to prove yourself this year to yourself. Like this time is different. I can do this. I have failed so many times in my life, but I want to feel a sense of accomplishment. I'm going to do it this year. I'm tired of being a failure. I feel so guilty about this or that in my life, and I'm going to change it. Again, that can come from a good place, wanting to see good change, but underlying most of that is just a worship of the self. While we'll never be saved by our efforts, living to know God and to love Him actually requires effort, though. Not in an effort to perform so he'll accept me, but in an actual desire to resolve to change and to want to know him and then begin to make changes. But only out of response to his unbelievable and amazing grace. If there is no effort to become more and more like Jesus, there may not be true belief, true worship of him. Paul knows that he's not yet been made perfect, but nevertheless, he presses on, to make it his own, because Christ Jesus has made him his own. He is trying to obey and change out of right motivation, which is the saving grace of God. Okay, so you might be sitting there thinking, all right, change shouldn't be about my looking good. It should be about God's glory. Change ought to be uh, with its first goal of knowing God. But how? Very practically, how? How? do I change? Well, lastly, the method of change. How does Paul say that he will make knowing Christ his own? How will Paul change? Verses 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Paul hasn't arrived. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, it's tempting for us to think that this means that we should just forget about everything in the past. Like, never again once thinking about our past mistakes or our past failures. But like, look, like Wednesday morning, when the, when the calendar changed on Tuesday to Wednesday from 2019 to 2020, like, it's not a blank slate. It's not a complete redo. You might have a new calendar, but you are bringing all of your bad habits into 2020. You're bringing your broken relationships, you're bringing sinful and self-worshipping motivations, you're bringing your laziness and your frustrations. 2020 isn't a do-over. It's like an arbitrary marker of time. There is nothing special about one day to the next, much less one year to the next. We just decided that's when we're going to change our calendars. It is not separating you from the person that you were in 2019. What Paul is saying is that whatever is behind him, his successes or his failures, all of that is irrelevant toward his present pursuit of Christ. All of it is irrelevant to his present today, 2020, straining after Christ. He will pursue Christ now every day of his life more and more So, as much as we'd like for midnight on Tuesday to become like some silver bullet or uh, some magic potion that brings change, like now, five days of reality into this year ought to show us that there was no magical change, right? But you know what? I think that's actually a relief. I think it's a relief. One pastor says, Grace doesn't look over our past because that is exactly the place that grace looks to do its work. If we did not bring all of our mistakes and our failures and our bad habits and all of our weakness, then we would have no need for grace in 2020. But God does not overlook our past. This is where he seeks to redeem and to heal. He is not looking for self-righteous religious do-gooders. He is pursuing wretched sinners who recognize their inadequacy, who realize their unrighteousness. These are the kind of people that he can transform. Perhaps you're hearing me and thinking, well, then I shouldn't bother to make any resolutions this year other than to just know Christ. But that's not quite what I'm saying. To know Christ should be the first goal, but second goals are actually the road to which we know Christ. We call these things, these second things, these second goals, we call these things spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible, praying, gathering with God's people. Together on Sundays, throughout our weeks at our dinner tables, these are the ways in which we are to know Christ. So we're going to, again, encourage you towards the Bible reading plan that we've adopted this year, the read scripture plan, which uh, there's a, you can grab one of these on the table over there. Maybe you got them last week, but they look just like this. Here is a Bible reading plan for the entire year. Uh, and if you're just now hearing of this for the very first time, Uh, It's January 5th, and you can just jump in on the 5th. There's also a really great app, the Read Scripture app, which has really helpful intro and overview videos of the books and theological themes that you're encountering. Uh, If you commit to just reading the Bible for 15 minutes a day, then you will have read the Bible in 2020. I've already shared this with you, but Dave and Gloria Ortega did this with us two years ago, and then even though we didn't push this as a church last year in 2019. The Ortega's did it again. And uh, Dave recently told me that their lives are irrevocably changed. There is no going back, he said. Just from reading the Bible for two years. And why wouldn't we expect that to happen? Because God has promised that this would happen. In his word, the Bible or does what it says it will do. It is better than bread. It is better than honey. It is a light unto our very, very dark path. All with just 15 minutes less of Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or Netflix. All of these things which will have zero lasting impact. Now, it's helpful to have a little perspective here. If you have never read the Bible before or if you've never done so without some sort of regularity or intentionality, it may be very confusing And in the the next couple of days and weeks and months, or even years, uh, it's going to get difficult. Just like, perhaps, you decided this is the year that I'm going to get in shape, and you started running this week, or going to the gym for the first time in several years. And it has been hard, right? You may not feel like you're growing in the gym. You may not feel like you're growing as you read the Bible. But God's Word is slowly getting inside you, so that Your new resolutions actually might become lifelong habits that actually then take very little willpower. Initially, a lot of these resolutions, especially when they're new things that you haven't done with regularity, they take a lot of willpower. But willpower will not sustain. Habits sustain. Walking with God through Christ by the Spirit actually becomes a way of life and not just uh, 15 minutes here or there. One other thing I'm going to be aiming toward this year in my Bible reading is I'm going to use the printed schedule. I'm going to fold this thing and keep it in my Bible all year uh, and read in a paper Bible. Not because I think uh, that paper is like more spiritual than your smartphone. Uh, The words are exactly the same. The medium is just a bit different. Uh, But because my phone is such a distraction. There are other apps. There are uh, notifications that pop up while I could be reading. So what I did on, two, on Thursday and Friday morning of this week was wake right up without looking at my phone at all. And then I ran with my dog in the very, very cold outdoors and got to just to wake up a little bit. I can't read right after I wake up. I'm, I'm not awake and I cannot consume uh, God's word in that way. But I got home and then read the Bible and prayed. And then only later in the morning— uh, rewarded myself with my phone, with the news and the blogs and the social media of the day. Uh, so to paraphrase from a podcast I recently heard, Christians today have much more to be distracted or concerned by from the iPhone inside their pockets than the secular society outside their walls. And I think that is true. One of the most countercultural things that you can do, one of the most uh, subversive cultural things that you can do in 2020 is just read the Bible and pray about it. And if we commit ourselves to doing this, I think that we're going to grow as a church. We'll send some helpful blogs again in the weekly email to help you along in your Bible reading this uh, this year. But two more quick things that I'd like to suggest, or just one, uh, for 2020. Not on the same level as uh, Bible reading, but uh, just that might help you uh, grow as a person and as your uh, awareness of God and of the world. And that is just more reading. More reading in general. With each year in America, we become more and more illiterate. Not meaning that more and more and more people in America can't read. In fact, more and more people can read it. And we as Americans are reading more and more words annually than we ever have in our social media or blog post world. But the kind of... Reading the kind of illiteracy that we are getting more and more into as Americans is the kind of varied and diverse reading that helps us to better understand the world around us. Not only in the deep works of theology, which can certainly uh, help us, works that have stood the test of time, but in, in just varied works of history and of biography and of psychology and of fiction that help us to understand humanity. Through these, Through this kind of reading, the world becomes bigger than just my here and now. Just what's in front of me today. We're taken into the psychology of the inner thoughts of others and thereby growing in empathy of other humans who are experiencing and thinking things that we don't. Our imaginations are provoked and we see beyond the mere cause and effect that is just laid before us in real life. So I've got much more to say about reading. But if you want to, if you want to, one of my favorite bloggers puts together uh, this annual reading challenge. We got these on the table right here or on the welcome desk too. And so this is it, the 2020 reading challenge. Uh, it is a checklist of different kinds of books for the light reader. The light reader is just 13 books this year. If you uh, would read a book every four weeks, which again would just be 15 additional minutes of your day, Uh, all the way down to an obsessed reader, which is reading 104 books this year. That would be two books a week. I don't think anybody in this room is going to do that, and that's fine. No big deal. Now, do not bite off more than you can chew. If you are hardly a reader at all, just do the Bible reading plan with us. Uh, But if you would commit to just reading 15 minutes of the Bible and 15 minutes in a different kind of book, uh, that would mean that you would at least accomplish this light reader plan. And then this time next year, we'll have read 13 books next year, which would be amazing and you'll be better for it. We've also, man, I didn't print this. We'll include it, but there's a kid's version of this also, which is so good, and just kind of varied reading. My kids like to read, but they can get into a niche and a groove of like just reading fiction, and here's a way to uh, help them think about uh, just the magical world of wizardry or something that they like to think about, right? Uh, so we'll include that, and a kid's version of the Bible reading, Bible reading plan as well. So the end of this year is a great time to make resolutions that uh, commit to strain forward, commit to press on toward the goal of the upward call of the prize of Christ Jesus, of being made perfect and living with him, uh, living with him in the resurrection of the dead. But grace must be the method for our change. Grace must must be the method for all of this. Though I will have ups and downs if I'm united to Jesus' life and death and his resurrection, by faith, through the forgiveness of sins. If all that is true, then God is ultimately for me. He is not against me. Though I make commitments to him, I must first realize that he has committed himself to me. He has committed all things together for my good of becoming more like Christ. And this requires a long-term perspective, which we do not like as Americans. We like things to happen tomorrow. But this kind of change requires long-term perspective. That of, I will fail this year. I will fail tomorrow. Perhaps you have done a Bible reading plan, and you miss one day, and that's all she wrote, right? Uh, The the crushing weight of failure of one day is too much to overcome. But his grace is sufficient— when I showed up at the Stammtisch at the German Texas Heritage Society that day, I had a short-sighted, all-or-nothing mentality. This was either going to go well and I was going to plant a church in Germany, or it wasn't and I was going to never think about the German language again. But the first moment of frustration, I bailed. And my guess is that's the reason that 25% of us have already given up on our New Year's resolutions. We don't have a hard, long-haul perspective. So the first time that we encounter frustration or failure, we quit. But we shouldn't be surprised or shocked when we prove ourselves to be who we actually are, that of weak failures. And the problem is is that we want to be fixed in 15 minutes a day with like three easy payments of $39.95, and that's why we quit. The shock of our sin becomes too much, and we forget that His grace is sufficient and so while you cannot make decisions for the next, like, 60 years of your life, you also can't make decisions that you will read the Bible every single day for the rest of 2020. You can't make that decision today. But you can make the decision to read today. You can make the decision tomorrow to read the Bible tomorrow. And that being, just be faithful in what the Lord has given you for today. You cannot make decisions for the rest of your life today. Just be faithful in the next thing. When you fail in the next thing, forgetting what is behind, let grace do its work of transformation and then just press on. Not to prove yourself to God, not to prove yourself to others, not even to prove yourself to yourself, but to know Christ and for his own glory. So go ahead, make resolutions this year. Resolve to read the Bible this year. Resolve to pray more. We'll think more about prayer in the coming weeks in Exodus. Does Moses change God's mind? Oh boy, that's gonna be a good one in a couple weeks. Uh, but resolve to pray. Resolve to be here with us on Sundays. But do this because knowing Christ is your highest goal. Do this because his glory made known in your life and in the world is your greatest motivation. And do this because his sustaining grace in your life is your source and your method. You will fail in your resolutions, I guarantee it. But Christ has not failed in living righteously for you. The Spirit will not fail in his work of transforming you. And God the Father, if you are in Christ, he will not fail in his forgiveness and of his kind, welcoming pleasure of you. Let's resolve to change for the glory of Christ. Let's do so for his glory and for our good in 2020. Let's pray that he would do these things in us and through us. So, God, we pray. That you would help us forget what is behind and that you would uh, cause us to look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and help us to press on towards him, to know him and to make him known. We pray that you would change us. Perhaps there are some tonight who need to be changed for the first time to have a new heart of forgiveness and of welcoming from you as Father. And turning in repentance. We pray that you would continue to change all of us, though, from one degree of glory to the next until we are made like Christ. We know that you are faithful when we are faithless, so we depend upon your grace because we are weak. But we pray that you would do all of these things for our good and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have
0: been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.